Hello, it's great to have your company. As always, a big show. In a moment, I'll be previewing this weekend's coronation of King Charles III with my guest, young monarchist Alexander Volz. You won't want to miss that. I'll be speaking again with my regular contributor, Kiralee Smith, about the latest in the war on girls and women. Now, this is an issue we've just got to keep shining a spotlight on because so much is at stake, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and most of all, the safety of girls and women. Uh, we're living through a mad cultural moment, folks. And uh, I'll also analyze on today's show the Victorian Liberals' decision to support a heroin injecting room. Yes, you heard that right. The Victorian Liberals are supporting the establishment of the heroin injecting room. Uh, all this and much more. But first, speaking of the ongoing drift of the Liberals to the left, are you pro-life or at least uncomfortable with Australia's regime of abortion right to the day of birth laws that we have in pretty much every state? Do you care about girls and women's rights? It seems that if you do, that the Liberal Party is not for you. Now, Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lay has fired a warning shot at so-called culture warriors within her own party. Essentially, she's saying that the Liberals are not interested in fighting the culture wars. It's not their pathway to power, according to Lay. In an opinion article for the Australian newspaper last week, Lay reflects on the 10-year anniversary of the election of the Abbott government. Now, what she fails to reflect on is the fact that the Abbott government was led by uh, a pro-life, a pro-man-woman marriage prime minister who won in a landslide back in 2013. But uh, this seems to be uh, missed on the fact of someone who is trying to disavow her colleagues from engaging with these important culture war issues. Her piece is a rallying cry for unity and jettisoning, see, and jettisoning what she sees as distractions. This is what she said. We are, not a sing we are not a party for single issue culture wars dominated by reactionary populists, she writes. In 2013, we were bogged down in, we were not bogged down in culture wars, she says. Now, Lay doesn't define what these culture wars are or who the single issue reactionary populists are, but we can guess. It seems she's trying to silence the likes of liberals uh, such as Catherine Deves. Uh, now, Catherine Deves uh, is a former federal candidate and current high profile party member. And uh, it seems like uh, Lay is also trying to silence the likes of Moira Deeming, a Victorian upper house member of parliament. Now, both of these courageous women have been demonized by the moderate liberals for advocating for rights of girls and women to be safe from radical LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology. Now, abortion, the killing of unborn babies, even while there's a healthy baby and a healthy mother, is another issue commonly lumped in the culture war basket, which only deplorables dare raise in political discourse, according to Lay's worldview. Deeming's pro-life position, something that is supposed to be welcome in the Liberal Party, came under attack from one of her colleagues speaking anonymously and gutlessly to the media. If you're joining the Liberal Party to implement regressive politics such as repealing abortion or turning back voluntary assisted dying, uh, another cultural issue, it's not the party for you, he or she said. Now, Liberals fail to realise that many of their Republican Party counterparts in the United States are actually winning the culture wars. 
Ron DeSantis, who is a uh, governor of, of uh, Florida and a possible presidential candidate. And incidentally, the establishment Republicans uh, preferred presidential candidate. They'd rather have him than Don Donald Trump. He recently signed a bill into law that protects unborn children with a beating heart. Imagine that. But Susan Lay seems to be saying the sa that the Susan Lay seems to be saying the same thing as Deeming's anonymous critic, even if she has not defined the issues or named names. Now, the climate-driven uh, energy debate is also seen by elites as a cultural issue that is supposedly settled. Those highlighting the folly, folly of net zero policies with no baseload power plan, such as Senators Matt Canavan, Alex Antic, and Jared Rennick, are marginalised figures within the Liberal Party. Incidentally, these Liberals are also pro-life and pro-girls and women's rights. Now, demonising those concerned about gender clinics harming children as single-issue reactionary populists is like saying to the 19th century anti-slave campaigner, anti-slavery campaigner, I should say, William Wilberforce, that he was too narrowly focused. By the way, anyone who knows anything about today's culture wars knows that, like Wilberforce, they are anything but single issues focused. Uh, Wilberforce was focused on a plethora of issues, including stopping the cruelty to animals, just to name one. Uh, but of course, uh, these days, demonising someone as single issue is a way to try and shut them up. Now, wise heads will say that good policy is good politics. The problem with modern politics is the only politics it is interested in is power politics, regardless of whether the issue is good or truthful. Now, mainstream Australians, they don't want their children confused about their gender at school. They don't support our laws which allow abortion all the way to the moment of birth, and lots of polling shows this. And they want an economy that flourishes because of the provision of reliable and affordable electricity. Elite opinion, to which Lay seems to be kowtowing and enforcing, demands acquiescence to abortion on demand, the LGBTIQA plus political agenda, no matter how crazy its claims, and it requires genuflection to climate ideology. Essentially, it means signing up to the globalist left's view of the world. Lay is simply trying to pull her troops into line with this worldview. But these issues are not settled. They are not fringe. They have massive implications for, the, for civil society and they should be matters for debate and discussion in the body politic. By denying this and marginalising those who seek to prosecute them, Lay is driving mainstream Australians away from the Liberal Party. This is not a new phenomenon, and Lay's missive this week is just the latest attempt to ensure issues that the elites find awkward don't get a profile in the party. It's why parties like Family First must exist. These are issues of social and economic importance, and they must not be cancelled from the political discourse. Well, still on the Liberals' drift to the radical left, has the party of Sir Robert Menzies and John Howard run up the white flag on illegal drugs? Instead of opposing the establishment of heroin injecting rooms, the Victorian Liberals are now trying to broker an accommodation with Labor and the Greens that would see the harmful facilities become a permanent fixture of life in Victoria. It's ironic that in the week that the Albanese government has announced the banning of recreational vaping, that the Liberals are happy to join Labor and the Greens in their hypocrisy in allowing recreational heroin use at permanent government-funded centres. 
Politicians of all stripes have also given up on trying to stop recreational marijuana use, but, but don't get caught with a flavoured vape, whatever you do. Now, Labor's uh, Andrews government in Victoria foolishly established a trial heroin injecting facility in North Richmond five years ago. These trials uh, are just Trojan horses for what they want to do uh, long term. And uh, compounding their folly, they located this trial heroin injecting centre next door to a primary school. It's been a disaster and the community is demanding the missing pages of a government report which says nothing to see here be released. The government just wants to paint a picture that it's all working really rosily. Now, Richmond West Primary School children have been forced to witness antisocial behaviour and at least one person has died outside the centre within metres of the school's entrance uh, of an overdose. Now, residents and parents are up in arms and they don't believe the government's spin about how it's supposed, about its supposed benefits. Instead, of opposing Labor's legislation to make the Richmond facility permanent, the Liberals moved a motion to ensure future injecting rooms are 250 metres from schools, childcare centres and community facilities. Now, how that would protect children and residents from witnessing drug deals and bodies going down is anyone's guess. Just like pill testing at music festivals, politicians have given up on the fight to protect young people from illegal drugs by interdiction and rehabilitation. And now the politicians just facilitate their use. You can't vape, but the government will test your teenager's e-pill and open the door to a place where he or she can stick a needle containing a hyper-addictive substance in their arm. Maintaining people in harmful addictions by co-opting police and doctors to act against their instincts is where weak politicians, led by the ideologues of the radical left, have landed us. Politicians forget that the iron law of public policy is that what they allow, society gets more of. It might sound great to supervise someone's habit of shooting up with a highly addictive, harmful substance, but the reality is uh, more young people will be encouraged to take this dangerous path with the green light of government sanction. Instead of doing the hard stuff, politicians claim they can contain vice such as drugs and prostitution with tight regulation. You can't stop it, so legalise it and everything will be fine, is the argument. Now that false promise is playing out in real time in the state of Queensland, where the Beattie government back in the early 2000s said that it would create a tightly uh, regulated regime of legal brothels, um, which would be where the legalisation of prostitution would end full stop. Now, fast forward to 2023, and the Palaszczuk government has just announced full decriminalisation. Like a starving Oliver Twist, criminal activity sanctioned by government always come back asking for more. Policing illegal drugs and prostitutions is hard. So is policing murder. None of these things can be completely eradicated, but neither should they be green-lighted by the government. Law in the Western tradition has never meant to be just the big stick. Its role has always been edu educative. The law conceived through democratic deliberation represents what society believes to be for the flourishing of humans. Legalizing activities that harm humans, particularly young people, only leads to the expansion and growth of pain and misery. The liberals are naive to think that 
a law that puts a drug injecting room 251 metres away from a childcare centre will solve the problem of kids seeing people shooting up and dying in the streets. They are naive to think maintaining people in their addictions is the answer instead of using the full force of the law to limit and discourage illegal drug taking. The only winners are the criminal gangs who supply the poor addicts encouraged by the government's support of their dehumanising habit. So-called moderate liberals feel free to break ranks with Peter Dutton on the party's agreed opposition to The Voice, but where are the conservative Victorian liberals speaking out against the party's support of heroin injecting rooms? This is another reason why Family First is rebuilding. The Labor, Liberal, Teal and Green quad of Australian politics have abandoned what mums and dads want, a civil society with a functioning police and medical service that discourages vice and helps get those who struggle out of their addictions, not maintain them in them. As former Howard Government Minister Gary Hardgrave told Peter Credlin on Sky News this week, the Victorian Liberals need to put some cement in their coffee. Three-decade-old debate has been reignited just days out from the coronation of King Charles. Republicans argue now is the time for Australia to rethink its ties to the Crown, while monarchists say the traditional system of governance works. A changing of the guard has revived a question Australians have been asking for 30 years. I don't see any reason why we would become a republic. To be a modern country, we don't need the connection to Britain anymore. In five days, Prince Charles will be coronated as king, but does Australia want one? Clearly many Australians had a, a relationship of affection with Queen Elizabeth and her passing has fundamentally changed the, the whole conception of the crown. It's not so much about the person who wears the crown, uh, but rather the crown itself. Both sides have their arguments on a foreign head of state. Someone who is unrepresentative, someone of course is unelected, unaccountable. I don't see what's so representative about a elite celebrity, millionaire, metropolitan president. Well, joining me now is Alexander Voltz from the Australian Monarchist League. Alexander, great to have you. Um, what's Craig Foster, a former soccer player, What's he playing at here as the new head of state, uh, or, or sorry, as the new head of the Australian Republic movement? Is it good taste for him to be trying to leverage the coronation of King Charles for his political purposes? Well, thanks for having me, Lyle. And uh, we can come back to that Freudian slip in a moment, I think. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, I, I think this is particularly in poor taste of, of Craig Foster and the Australian Republic movement. It's sad to me, Lyle. You know, it's sad that these people would come along and seek to use an event that for many will be a celebration of enormous proportions for their own political um, benefit. You know, you just have to go to Craig Foster's social media and see some of the things that he's spitting out. The rhetoric, Lyle, is unbelievable. You know, genocide, slavery, the monarchy being this anti-democratic institution. Uh, I, I, I struggle to swallow it, and I think all Australians should struggle to swallow it too, because to be a monarchist is to be uh, historically informed, if you like. We have 122 years of history in this country uh, that um, strongly suggest to us that our system of government works, you know. Um, and I'm going to invoke the Hitchens razor, Lyle. It's a, it's a little line, an epistemological razor by Christopher Hitchens, who you're probably not the biggest fan of. And I disagree with him on a lot as well. But he would always say what, 
what can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence. And so often monarchists fall into the trap of being forced to defend this position, to defend monarchy. Well, actually, no, the burden of proof is on Republicans. And they haven't told us what they've meant for years, for decades. So uh, that, um, that, that's exactly that right. as well. That's exactly right, yeah. um, Alexander. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, and I do prefer um, Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter Hitchens, but that was a fine line from uh, Christopher. Um, look, as you rightly say, becoming a republic, it's not some simple affair, is it? Uh, it's, it's a bit like the voice debate. Um, it's a radical overhaul of the way we're governed. It changes our constitutional arrangements. Yeah, it, it certainly it certainly does, Lyle. Um, you know, we'll be looking at. Uh, well, this is the thing: we don't know what we'll be looking at. That and and again, what are the re Republicans going to tell us about this system? Um, uh, you, you know, C.S. Lewis, Lyle, he said um, in a paper that he wrote for the Spectator in 1943, the UK Spectator. Um, he wrote a piece called Equality. And in that, he had a central line, and that line is, monarchy can easily be debunked, but uh, watch the faces and mark well the debunkers. And so the question here is, do the people who are telling us that we need to radically alter our system without telling us that they're going to do it, how they're going to do it. Do they really have Australia's best interests at heart? And I refer to that back to that Freudian slip you had before, you know, <laughs> in the heart of every Republican lies a president. And I would be shocked if Craig Foster didn't nominate um, put his hand up to be president one day. I'll be shocked if he doesn't end up running for the Labor Party too, I have to say, at some point in his life. Um, so, yeah, there's yeah. that. We no, don't that, know. No, that, we don't know what's going to happen. No, we don't. And they can't tell us, um, you know, what would be the effect, for instance, of a prime minister uh, in the lodge, um, you know, our normal sort of head of, of government, not head of state, but running the, the, the government. Uh, and then if we had an elected president, uh, which is what the Republican movement keeps saying they want is an elected president, uh, down the road at Yarralumla, wouldn't this create two competing power centres in Australian politics? Whereas at the moment, the governor general and, and then uh, you know the king, uh, they are apolitical figures above the fray uh, and venom of politics. Uh, but suddenly we'd be creating two um, political people right at the very uh, top of the um, constitutional system. That would be a recipe for chaos, wouldn't it? Well, I think so. And Paul Keating has written pretty extensively about that himself being an, an ardent Republican. Um, if the president is elected by more people than um, the prime minister is, because, of course, the prime minister is a cabinet, uh, a caucus appointment type thing, uh, then that gives the uh, elected president more of a mandate to govern the government rather than the head of government who is the prime minister. And of course, Lyle, this is nothing to say of the state governors. What happens to them? Yeah. So are we going to have a, a election for every state governor as well? Because you can't have in a, in a fully fledged republic that's authentic and um, actually aesthetically accurate. You can't have uh, an appointed uh, state governor while you have an elected uh, president. So this is something to consider as well. But we don't know. It's yeah. like the voice, Lyle. It is what you said. It's like the voice. Where is the detail? Well, we're not going to get the detail for two reasons, Lyle. 
The first is either that they don't know the detail themselves, or B, they don't want us to know the detail. And I strongly suspect it's a case of the latter. No, you know, that's right. Have a look at the Australian choice. Have a look at the Australian choice model. You know that that is an absolutely chaotic document that the ARM put out, the Republic Movement put out last year, sometime. Uh, you know, there's, it, it is light on any explanation. Yeah. And we need to really be looking for that. Well, look, let, let's put aside the politics of the Republican debate now and focus on what's going to be happening this weekend with the coronation. Um, what attracts me to the tradition of the monarchy is that the person at the very top of our political system answers uh, not to um, not to men, but to actual to, to God. Now, I know not everyone who's watching this will be believers in God, but um, uh, to, to me, you know, at a time when most politicians, they think they are God's gift to us, isn't it, a, isn't it good for them to be reminded of the fact that there's actually something, uh, the transcendent, above them? And, and that sits at the top of our political system. It's, it's, a, it's a point of humility, is it not? I think so. I think that the, uh, the prospect of swearing an oath if you like. I think this is a good time to talk about oaths, Lyle. Swearing an oath to our higher authority, uh, which in this case is God, or at least the very concept of God, is something that's beneficial. You know, you take an oath and you don't swear allegiance to someone who's hierarchically below you. So what I mean by that is there's no way that an Australian head of state could or should be expected to swear allegiance to the Australian people. That wouldn't work. A captain of a ship doesn't swear allegiance to his crew. If he does, that's very likely to result in mutiny, you see. And the Australian people have a plethora of views. So the idea that they're all, um, you know, co coherent around uh, who might be a, a head of state is probably a fallacy and a paradoxical fallacy in itself. I would have thought the, the whole premise of to have elections was to, you know, to express different viewpoints. So you can't swear allegiance to something that's hierarchically below you. Yep. And if that's the case, you can only swear something above, and that would be God in this concept. Yeah, and that, that's an acknowledgement that uh, you don't have all the answers and that whoever heads our political system, which is the king and the governor generals, they're, um, they, they answer to uh, someone higher than just themselves, and uh, I think that's a good thing. Now, not everyone, sadly, agrees with the, the traditions of Western culture and Christian spirituality that will be on display on Saturday night. Troy Bramston wrote an article in The Australian this week rubbishing it, and now, this is what he said. He said, the idea that Charles will have a secret engagement with God during the ceremony to signify he has been chosen by the Almighty is ludicrous. Uh, he went on to say, uh, the investing uh, will see Charles presented with gold, leather and velvet spurs, the jeweled sword, gold decorated armels, the robe and stole royale, uh, the gold and jeweled orb, the ring and the glove, and the scripture with cross and scepter with dove. The St. Edward's crown is then lowered onto Charles' head. God save the king. He then sits on the throne and surveys his kingdom as the homage is made. All this is a bit much. It harks back to a bygone age, Troy Bramston writes in a very mocking sort of a tone. Now, Alexander, and, and there's a lot of symbolism in all that, um, all that stuff that's mentioned in that 
uh, article, the orb, etc. And all of that is, is poignant with meaning, which most of us are ignorant of, and we don't have time to unpack all that today. But if someone dared to say what Troy Bramston just said about Aboriginal um, spirituality or an Aboriginal smoking ceremony or welcome to country, they'd be hell to pay. Why is it that only Western and Christian traditions can be mocked and ridiculed as out of date? Yes, well, the hypocrisies um, certainly through the roof on this one, I think you'll find. There are plenty of inconsistencies in Troy Bramston's article. On the one hand, he's um, offended by the fact that Charles will have a private audience with God, if you like, uh, that's uh, hidden from the eyes of the world. On the other hand, he's offended by the fact that there'll be public participation through the homage of the people uh, that's been introduced this year. So... Uh, you know, you say Western civilization's out of date. Well, I wonder if newspapers are out of date, you know, and that would be something interesting to ask uh, Troy Bramston in this is social um, digital, digital era. Look, the things that have been going on in the coronation have been going on, some of them, since 973. 973. That's 1,050 years ago. And just because something is old doesn't mean it intrinsically has value, but it's highly suggestive that it does, because if something doesn't work, you change it pretty quickly. If it does work, you keep it. But I think, Lyle, on the whole, you know, Western civilization and Judeo-Christian law and practice, what it represents is an antidote to cultural Marxism, to all the power-hungry uh, attacks against individualism, attacks against the concept of responsibility that we see in our modern world. At the end of the day, it all boils down to pursuit of power. And the people who are criticizing uh, the coronation, criticizing Charles, criticizing the monarchy, as I said, the C.S. Lewis quote is perfect. Be very careful what you wish with these people. Well, well, that's exactly right, Alexander, and well said, because the things that uh, Ramson is mocking, even though he would never mock Aboriginal uh, heritage, uh, the things he's mocking are the very things that provide checks and balances and ensure that we don't live under tyranny if only anyone would take the time to study the meaning behind all that's going to be happening on Saturday night in that coronation. Now, now speaking of Charles' secret engagement with God, uh, the most sacred part of the coronation, which is the anointing uh, of the new monarch with oil, uh, part of that service, and this was the case for Queen Elizabeth back in 1953, was the playing of Handel's Zadok the Priest and Nathan the Prophet, a beautiful piece of music. Take a listen.
It's an amazing uh, piece of music. Handel, of course, known mainly for his Messiah. Now, I, I don't know whether that um, is going to be part of what Charles has said is going to be a, a trimmed down coronation. I certainly hope it will be. But the significance of Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, um, this, this um, has incredible implications for uh, how we're governed. Um, tell, tell us who these historical figures are and why they are at the centre of King Charles's coronation. Oh, gee, I didn't prepare on that one, Lyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I was just checking. I was just checking on my phone to see um, when the, when well, Zadok well, was maybe, first. Maybe I could help yeah, you yeah. Um, uh, because um, yeah, yeah, please. And, and you, you and I know you're an ardent monarchist. So you understand the uh, importance of this. But Zadok the priest was, of course, uh, King David's priest uh, back in ancient um, Judah. Uh, first king of, um, of Israel and, and Judah back in the day, thousands of years ago. And Nathan the prophet, and this is really intriguing, um, he was the one who went to David after David had committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba, uh, who he'd observed bathing uh, from his kingly rooftop. And he took her and uh, then he arranged the murder of her husband. And uh, Nathan the prophet discovered this and came and confronted David. And um, I just think it's really significant that David's spiritual guide, Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet are at the center of the coronation because this symbolizes speaking truth to power because Nathan came to David, who was king, and said, you did this, you've murdered a man and you've committed adultery. He said that to the king. And uh, this is at the heart of the um, most sacred part of the coronation. Uh, what, what does that tell us about how leaders are to govern us? Well, I think, I think what that tells us, Lyle, is that even the king is bound to a higher authority. And that's perhaps reassuring to us. You know, the king will lead with a, a certain dignity and grace that is necessary being bound to that higher authority. Zadok priest has been used since 1727. I just looked up and, uh, you know, that again is it's a symbol that's endured. Yeah. So this is a message here that is certainly one worth uh, listening to and as we said earlier, serves as a perfect reminder to our politicians to encourage them that, no, they are not the be-all and end-all. There more, there's more to this world than then and perhaps a higher authority too. Yeah, you, you can't imagine a Nathan the prophet-like figure going up to Xi Jinping and saying, hey, you've committed grievous crimes. Uh, but that's baked into our Western tradition and our, our British tradition, and that's what we'll be seeing on display on Saturday night, along with so much other uh, symbolism and spirituality, which we can't unpack today from our wonderful Christian heritage. Alexander Voltz uh, from the Australian Monarchist League, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Thanks, Lyle. Thank you very much. What is a woman, Prime Minister? An adult female. How difficult was that to answer? Not too hard. Uh, I was asked. Uh, I was asked during the campaign, actually. But does it seem fair uh, to you uh, that, that people who were born biologically male with all the physical advantage should be able to compete against people born with female biology? Well, in Australia, the sporting codes are able to deal with that, uh, and 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 they have. 
Well, joining me now once again to discuss the latest in the war on girls and women is advocate Kiralee Smith of Binary. Kiralee, that was Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in London this week being asked questions mainstream mums and dads want answered. But when Piers Morgan of Sky News UK asked him about biological males in girls and women's sport, it looked like the PM was fudging. Uh, he absolutely was. Yes, he gave the correct answer that uh, women are human adult females. However, his own party policy and the laws in Australia do not reflect that fact. And it is a fact. And he also said that sporting organisations are dealing with it. What he didn't say is the way they are dealing with it is to silence and threaten any opposition to anybody who says that males should not participate in the female divisions of sport. Yeah, uh, it was quite quite disingenuous, and we certainly need some some greater media scrutiny on the prime minister there because it, it's mums and dads, uh, particularly at the junior sport level, as Andrew Bogart has said, and as you and I have discussed, uh, they're the ones that are having to put up with this on a on a regular basis. Yes, there are, there's more and more evidence coming out every day that there are biological males participating in female divisions. It makes a mockery of the divisions. Why have female yep. sporting divisions if anybody can play in them? Yeah, well, let's hope that um, Australian media uh, pick up on what Piers Morgan has done there and continue to uh, shine a light on, on this issue. And uh, you're quite right about Labor Party policy. I mean, one of the extreme things that many people don't know is that Labor policy is for taxpayer-funded sex change operations for young people. Doesn't define whether they're minors or not, but I bet it does. Now, now just on that women's sports issue, Kiralee, um, this week, you know, yet another male has stolen first place and prize money from women in sport, this time in cycling in New Mexico in the US. Uh, Kiralee, tell us what happened. Uh, yeah, I can't remember his first name. Killip, though, 27-year-old yeah, male. Austin Killip. Austin. Austin Killip, a 27-year-old male, took first place and $35,000 in prize money away from women in that women's division. It's a very prestigious cycling event and uh, there has been quite a lot of... Um, spotlight put on this issue. Women are standing up. Men are also obviously standing up. This is unacceptable. He is a very mediocre male cyclist, but he has absolutely thrashed the women in this competitive and elite competition. Yeah, you wonder how long this is going to keep going on for, and that's why we keep uh, mentioning it on this show every week. Kiralee, um, Moira Deeming, the uh, incredibly courageous Victorian Liberal MP, who's known to both you and I, uh, unjustly suspended for nine months from the Liberal Party room by the leader John Pesuto and her own colleagues for speaking up for the rights of girls and women. Uh, Moira has re-entered the debate uh, with this brilliant question in the Victorian Parliament. Take a look. Thank you, Mr. President. My question is for the Minister for Corrections. Could the Minister please outline the processes and procedures which currently allow biological male criminals who identify as female to be imprisoned in female prisoners? Prisons. Minister. Thank you, uh, President. And thank you, Ms. Deeming, for that question. I think your long-standing interest uh, on this topic is well publicised. Uh, what I will say is that the policies and procedures in terms of prisoner placements more broadly, um, uh, there's a department obviously um, that looks at these matters and prisoner placements are made in the interest of the individual prisoner with obviously the safety uh, and security needs of the system as a whole, including the safety of other prisoners is also concerned. So broadly speaking, that's the broad policy. But I don't, that's a decision for Corrections Victoria. 
to make, and it's not my place to go into individual prisoner placements. Um, I know the context in which you're asking this question because you've been quite public about it. Um, but what I will say is that as a government, we're, com we're committed to the safety of all prisoners uh, and everyone in our system, including trans prisoners. I think that's important to point out as a government. Uh, we have a number of policies as well for looking for improvements in, in relation to this area. Um, our government's established a transgender diverse and intersex prisoner reference group to monitor issues such as those that uh, you've raised in the past and consider opportunities for system improvements related to the management of transgender diverse and intersex prisoners. And as a government, we're proud to embrace all Victorians. Thank you. Mrs Damien, supplementary question? Thank you, Mr President. Uh, I look forward to hearing about uh, a reference group for women's, prison right, women's prisoner rights. And we all know that being a male at all is a risk and an unacceptable denial of sex-based rights to privacy for female prisoners. And we already know that there is a... Uh, one twice-convicted male rapist in the Dame Phyllis Frost Correctional Centre. Could you please provide an estimate of the total number of biologically male criminals that are currently housed in women's prisons in Victoria? Minister. Thank you, President, and uh, uh, Ms Deeming for her supplementary question. Uh, as I stated to my substantive, it's not appropriate for me to go into individual prisoner placements. That's a decision that Corrections Victoria make in line with... Um, uh, in line with their policies about ensuring the safety of prisoners, the prisoners' own preference uh, for their placement, also other broader considerations as well, the system and, and the safety of other prisoners too. You need to understand that um, there are emerging factors uh, uh, in our prison system, and I think that's why the reference group is, is important. We don't it's not appropriate to take just a populist stance on these issues or what you think is a populist stance. I think it's important to take a principled stance. And as a government, we've, we're not going to take a step backwards. We're going to embrace all Victorians, and we're committed to that, and we'll continue to do that work. We've got this reference group, and I look forward to working. I look forward to working with them as well in terms of getting their feedback on these issues on how we can make improvements in the placement of prisoners. But there are policies in place to ensure the safety of all Victorians, and I'm committed to that. Thank you. Uh, Minister now, now Kiralee, um, that, that was a long, a long clip, and I make no apology for playing a long clip. We want to get beyond the sound bites and have an informed audience. But uh, what did you make of that revelation by the Corrections Minister, Enver Erdogan, that the government has set up a transgender diverse and intersex prisoner reference group to monitor safety and privacy concerns? It is absolutely mind-boggling, Lyle. It makes it sound like they're choosing a resort to go to for holidays instead of serving time incarcerated for crimes that these people have committed. And it's not about... Uh, he, he literally said prisoners' own preference of where they want to be placed. That, that is absolutely yeah. insane. If they are criminals and violent male criminals at that... Um, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they wear, what their pronouns are, how they change their name, uh, the drugs they might take, the surgery they might undergo, they are still male. And one male in female prisons is one male too many. It's unacceptable. It should never have happened in the first place. There's no need for a reference group. You're incarcerated according to your biological reality. That's right, and, and that should be the case, not according to your preferences, as, uh, as you rightly point out. I mean, it's talk about putting the inmates in charge of the, uh, the prison system. Now, Erdogan was quite patronising of Moira, saying that her long-standing views were well-known, as if, you know, here we go again. 
and he labeled what she was saying as popularist. Now, that's quite insulting to the concerns of women about their safety, uh, given the demands of LGBTIQA plus activists, the political activists, because they are demanding access into women's and girls' private spaces, whether they be prisons or, or sporting locker rooms. Um, so this is quite insulting of the corrections minister, isn't it? It's insulting and it is dangerous. Lyle, these women in, in prison are one of the most vulnerable cohorts in society and their rights are being trounced upon when they are then forced to serve their time with male-bodied prisoners. It's, it's unfair, it's unjust and it is very dangerous to those female prisoners. We know, we already know that overseas... Uh, where similar situations have occurred, that women have been sexually assaulted, they have been harassed, intimidated, threatened and harmed. And it's, uh, it's unacceptable to think that the same thing could happen here in our country. Yeah, and, and what, what we just saw in, in the parliament uh, with the courageous woman questioning that, that just shows how politicians use obfuscation and uh, weasel words to try and um, facilitate uh, these dangerous things that are going on. So good on Moira Deeming. The sooner that uh, she is uh, unsuspended from the Liberal Party room, uh, the better. That's such an unjust thing and a good on her for continuing to speak out. She's just making John Pesuto look more and more stupid the more she uh, continues to prosecute these very logical arguments. Finally, Kiralee... She um, is a saint. She is Sorry. a saint. She's yeah. a saint. She's uh, an absolute saint who, who conducts herself with dignity and, uh, and honour in every single way and... Um, she deserves our utmost respect. Yeah, absolutely. Now, keep the pressure on the Victorian Liberal Party to remedy that injustice. Uh, finally, Kiralee, uh, last week we chatted about the Tickle versus Giggle case in the federal court where biological male Roxanne Tickle is suing Sal Grover, the creator of a women's only app uh, called Giggle. And uh, Sal Grover is being sued for discrimination because she wanted to create an app for women. Um, it went to court last Friday. Um, what's the latest, uh, Kiralee? Yeah, well, the mind boggles that it's still in court, actually. But it was, look, Friday was about a lot of legal argument and uh, who's going to pay the costs um, as this case progress. Um, there were some entertaining moments. One of the uh, the highlights was when uh, all, all the female legal team for Sal Grover wore green and white and looked absolutely stunning, which is some feminist colours there. Uh, the judge, uh, not in relation to sex, but kept using the word binary, which um, entertained the audience no end um, because sex is binary. We know that. There's male and there's female. So uh, not a lot yet. His decision will come in uh, in the next few weeks about who will be paying costs and then it will progress to the next stage. So we'll keep a close eye on that case because, uh, as you said, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that a woman can't create a female-only app and uh, not be taken to court over it in this country. Yeah, and, and it's ridiculous that our politicians are allowing laws to stand that allow people to be dragged through the courts like this. I mean, this is an outrage. Every politician worth their salt should be advocating right now for law reform in these issues, and uh, and particularly, you know, the conservative side of politics, but they're completely silent. Uh, Kiralee, no doubt we'll talk more about this uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, I really appreciate you giving of your time again today here on ADH TV. Australia's constitution is 122 years old and still doesn't recognise Indigenous Australians. We've been here for 65,000 years. This year, Australians have a chance to fix that with a referendum to give Indigenous Australians a real say in their future. Fair enough. I'll second that. To find out more, visit yes23.com.au. 
join us. Authorised by Dean Park and Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition Limited, Sydney. Well, what you just saw there was the opening advertisement for the Yes campaign for this so-called voice to parliament. Uh, now, you didn't even hear the word voice mentioned in that ad, a very, very misleading ad. And uh, look, like most Australians, uh, myself, uh, the, the Family First Party, which I'm a part of, supports recognition for Indigenous people in the Constitution. I don't think that's uh, at issue here. But failure to, failure to recognise was sadly an unfortunate and unjust oversight by the founders of the Australian nation, who otherwise designed one of the world's best constitutions. Proof of this is Australia's political stability and achievement in comparison with so many other nations during the past 122 years. This should be taught in schools and the likes of Sir Henry Parks, who was one of the founding drafters of our constitution, should be highly esteemed instead of virtually unknown as he is today. Ask any kid who Sir Henry Parks was and they probably couldn't tell you. Now, Australians have shown uh, over and over again their overwhelming goodwill towards Indigenous Australians and particularly this was done at the 1967 uh, referendum which righted a constitutional wrong uh, where Indigenous people were not included in the census. So they already had the right to vote and citizenship. Far from seeking to entrench white privilege, the 1967 referendum to amend the constitution was overwhelmingly carried by Australians. Most Australian referenda failed, but this one was an overwhelming success. However, I'm opposed to, and Family First is opposed to, the current referendum proposal for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. We're not opposed to recognition. If it was just what was in that advertisement, we'd all sign up to that. But uh, that is far from what is proposed. Rather than a modest advisory body, as asserted by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, as more detail emerges, it is clear the voice represents a radical change to the constitution and a complete overhaul of the way we are governed. Now, revelations this week in a submission by constitutional law experts, Nicholas Aroni and Peter Garangalis, um, both professors of constitutional law at the University of Queensland and the University of Sydney, respectively, uh, their submission further heightens these concerns about what the voice will do to our system of government. Aroni and, uh, and Garangalis submit to the Joint Parliamentary Select Committee on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice referendum that the voice will likely have the same status in the constitution as the parliament and the executive and the courts. Now, this is extraordinary and something not contemplated or discussed so far in this debate. It flies in the face of everything Australians have been told about The Voice. If Aroni and Garangalis are correct, and uh, these are two of the top constitutional law experts in the nation, it means that The Voice would be an important institution with significant powers and responsibilities, far from just a modest advisory body that uh, politicians could take or leave their advice. Um, this is a million miles from what we've been told. Um, furthermore, according to Aroni and Garangalis, there is confusion about what constitutes representation to the parliament and, of course, the executive arm of government. Is representation to entities, i.e. like the parliament or, or the executive, or is it to individual parliamentarians and individual civil servants? No one knows. Uh, and it could be construed either way. The proposal also requires that all relevant information to be provided to the 
uh, be provided to the voice the same uh, relevant information that would be available to the executive arm of government. You can see there's a very powerful body with access to unlimited information not available to other Australians who are not of the correct racial background. There is also the possibility of fiduciary duty applying, which could change the way parliament and government operate. Fiduciary duty is a legal obligation to act in the best interests of another person or group. Now, that of course all sounds fine until the lawyers and the High Court get involved. If Parliament decided not to act on the advice of the voice, it would be a political decision and outside the scope of administrative law. However, if a decision maker exercising a power fails to consider a relevant representation made by the voice, an aggrieved party with sufficient standing could initiate legal proceedings seeking judicial review of the decision. In such a case, a court could, and it would be the High Court of course, could decide um, that, uh, uh, sorry, could set aside the administrative decision if it finds that the decision maker failed to give adequate weight to a relevant factor of importance or gave excessive weight to a relevant factor of little importance. Now this would throw sand in the gears of government. Special rights to one category of Australians based on their racial ancestry flies in the face of the idea of equality before the law and the Australian egalitarian ethos. Australia's settlement by Europeans and more recently by Asians and the dispossession of Indigenous people is a fact of history. What happened here has occurred throughout all of history on all continents. It's not possible to undo the past. It is possible to acknowledge wrongs and to seek to right them where possible, but there comes a point where forgiveness on both sides is required. Urgent work needs to continue to restore law and order, protect children from sexual abuse and alleviate poverty in Indigenous communities and incidentally also in white communities where these things are not quite as visible. But dividing the nation by race with special constitutional privileges for one race is not the way. Indigenous Australians should be recognised in the Constitution, but be equal under the law with every other ethnicity that now calls home what is arguably the best nation in the world. Our past is not perfect, but compared to most other nations, it's been amazing, including for a great many Indigenous Australians. Despite our failings, Australia continues to offer hope for and enormous goodwill towards Indigenous people for whom the gap still needs to be urgently closed. A voice which upends our constitution and divides us by race won't achieve that. It risks creating further acrimony. The path forward is together as one, not separately. Well, that's it for me this week. Again, thanks so much for your company. Don't forget to check out all the amazing content here at ADH TV. It really is the future of media in this nation. You can follow me on Twitter at Lyle Shelton, and there's plenty of political news on the Family First Party blog, familyfirstparty.org.au. Until next week, don't stay silent.